5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And we are back. The Punch Out, 10th of November. You better remember. I think I said that last week. I have no idea what that's in relationship to, but I'm just going to keep saying it because you could keep remembering Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today and every Monday through Friday, not every day. We are here on the Punch-Out, following the news. On today's Punch-Out, we're touching Israel, which is doing, surprise, surprise, some very, very terrible things. Yet again, Russia and China. What's their take on the possibility of the new presidency with Joe Biden for relations between the United States and those countries? But before we get to Russia, China, Israel, Biden, all of that... We start with Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Uh, Is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security? There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. And yes, that was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo caping. For Donald Trump there, claiming that, of course, Trump won the election, or at least implying that Trump won the election. This is getting quite a bit of run because people are saying, well, look at Pompeo tried to, you know, facilitate the steal or whatever people are calling it. Interestingly enough, though, no one is really talking about the second part of his comments, where despite what you just heard, he actually walked it back. Here, take a listen. All right. We're we're ready. The the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors selected. There's a process. The Constitution lays it out pretty clearly. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary to make sure that the State Department is functional today, successful today, and successful with the president who's in office on January 20th, a minute afternoon, will also be successful. I went through a transition on the front, and I've, I've been on the other side of this. I'm very confident that we will... Uh, do all the things that are necessary to make sure that the, the government, the United States government, will continue to perform its national security function as we go forward. Now, you know, Pompeo walking it back and uh, his ambivalence, perhaps you could describe it as, is somewhat indicative of what appears to be happening to Trump now as even some of his closest allies read Fox News, turn away from him and others tepidly support him or stay silent as he attempts to challenge the election results and defend his position, perhaps an indefensible position, one might say, that he won the election and that any suggestion otherwise is to countenance matters Massive voter fraud. Now, the general mood amongst Republicans can be summed up, perhaps, by Senator Roy Blunt from the state of Missouri, show me state, who said on this week, that's the Sunday show on ABC, quote, I look forward to the president dealing with this however he needs to deal with it, end quote. However he needs to deal with it. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Others are taking refuge in the process element of it all. For instance, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy stated that, quote, all legal challenges must be heard. Mitch McConnell noted that Trump was 100% within his rights to challenge the results. So not exactly ringing endorsements there. Uh, Mike Pence really took it a level further that he basically has just said nothing. In fact, as some Republicans who are a little salty who support Trump have noted, he seems to more or less have disappeared 
disappeared off the face of the earth here. Certainly hasn't made any major statements, although allegedly he's at the White House, he's being with Trump. But nevertheless, he hasn't really come out swinging here. Now, Trump may be getting the most support from Senator David Perdue and Senator Kelly Loeffler. Now, they are both senators, the two senators from the state of Georgia. They are both, however, facing runoffs, and they both look like they could lose. Now, they have called for the Georgia Secretary of State to resign for saying that there was no real evidence of voter fraud in the state. So, of course, they want to try to pump up the base of people brought out by Trump by stoking the flames of this false voter fraud. And they said, Secretary of State, step down. You got to resign. Worth noting, the Secretary of State of Georgia, who said there was no real voter fraud in the state, is a Republican. A few well-known Trump haters, I should say, among the Republicans, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, have all just outright recognized Mr. Biden's win. Not surprising, they're often at odds with Trump, but nevertheless, relatively important people from deeply Republican states. Susan Collins, obviously a major player in just about every big Senate controversy, and they have given up the ghost, it seems, on a Trump second term or a second term for Trump. Now, at the end of the day, the real issue for Trump is that there just isn't that much evidence. Really, zero of significant voter fraud. And so because of that, just about all of his lawsuits seem completely likely to fail. Some of them are just completely absurd. You look at some of the things they're filing in Pennsylvania, trying to put basically injunctions on every vote cast in the whole election. I mean, it really they're really reaching here. But that being said, he did get over 70 million votes now. I mean, a significant increase over 2016. So he is clearly very popular with the Republican base and has actually motivated, at least from what we can tell, a decently large number of people to move from the ranks of the non-voters into the Republican Party very solidly. Even seem seemingly expanding its base a small degree, but nevertheless, expanding its base seemingly among the non-white population, while amazingly, I mean, this is the, the stunning part about that, being extraordinarily racist. But, you know, hey, the <laughs> consciousness is not linear. But nevertheless, big results, some people would say, in terms of pushing forward the Republican Party in some ways. So while it seems very few Republican officials really believe Trump won, really do not really believe Trump won, I should say. They don't really believe he Trump won. Almost none of them want to publicly contradict him. Clearly, they are fearful that even if Trump is out of office, he's going to be one of the, if not the, most powerful kingmaker amongst Republicans, more than willing to back primary challenges to those he feels slighted him in any sort of way. And certainly not backing him now would be considered a slight. In fact, there's already truck talk about Trump running for president again in 2024. Such is his hold on the Republican Party. They're actually saying that he might run again. Lindsey Graham has even called for that. What's really notable about all this? Well, throughout the whole four years, everyone was wondering, well, is Trump a passing fad? You know, you've got Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and others saying the Republicans are really good. They're great people. They're going to go. They're going to return to form. It's all going to be fine. But despite those assurances from leading Democrats, it seems like the Republican Party is the party of Trump now. <laughs> Well, the 21st century, that's this century, it seems, comes down, well, <laughs> certainly our lives, it seems, will come down to whether or not there will be multilateral collaboration on crucial issues like climate change, or whether or not the United States will lead the world down a path to destruction and collapse very fiery very deadly by insisting on maintaining the unipolar order where the U.S. makes the rules and everyone else follows or else. As Thomas Friedman famously said, McDonald's doesn't work without McDonald Douglas.
The key issue here is what will American relations be like with the two main countries promoting and upholding a more multilateral approach to global cooperation on a number of issues, not the least of which is climate change, Russia and China. Now, there's a lot to this question. Much can even be said about the short description I gave just there alone about the state of the world here. But right now, though, let's focus on what Russia and China think about the prospects for change themselves. Now, reporting from Moscow, the Financial Times recently had a report that notes that as far as they can pick up, the Russians are bracing for a very chilly relationship with the United States under President Biden. They note that, quote, Moscow is braced for a renewed surge of anti-Russian rhetoric from Washington in the early days of a Biden administration and is nervous about bills currently in Congress that could dramatically increase the impact of sanctions against the country, end quote. And they go on, that's the Financial Times, they go on to note that Biden has stated that the U.S. must impose real cost on Russia, what it, that means, I don't know, but it does sound bellicose and warlike. And they also are concerned that Democrats themselves, beyond Biden, have become so anti-Russia based on all the Russiagate nonsense that has, interestingly enough, more or less disappeared, almost never came up uh, in a serious way uh, post the impeachment during the presidential campaign. But nevertheless, the Democrats have become so anti-Russia that there's really no rowing back on a new Cold War mentality, even if there was some desire for that in the White House. But of course, they also note that Biden has pledged to support civil society in Russia, i.e. meddle in their politics. Ironic, huh? One Western diplomat even told the Financial Times that they are expecting a quote-unquote massive hardening of tensions. That's certainly interesting there. Now, China seems to be expecting pretty much the same thing. The Global Times, which is a major barometer of quote-unquote official opinion, Chinese Communist Party opinion, as what some may say, although do they have one opinion? I don't know, but they certainly speak with one voice oftentimes. Nevertheless, the Global Times, often a place to pick that up for those of you who want to watch the news more closely. And that outlet has been filled with articles about how Biden will restore, quote unquote, predictability to the relationship. But that despite that, they're expecting little in the way of substantive changes. Now, most of the pieces that have been addressing this have noted that they expect Biden to be less openly bellicose towards China in terms of saber-rattling type stuff, but certainly much more outspoken on so-called human rights issues, pushing these various thinly sourced claims designed to tarnish China's reputation uh, as opposed to what we've seen from Trump, and that they'll be relying more on multilateral alliances than putting ships through the Taiwan Strait uh, or you know the South China Sea or whatever it may be, Straits of Taiwan, I should say, uh, to send a message to China. So it might look a little less warlike and aggressive or whatever it may be. It ha will have a lot less sort of swerves and turns and pieces like that, but the substance of it will be more or less the same. An interesting sort of parenthetical piece to that, most Indian foreign policy commentators, that's India, the country, are also expressing a view that they expect the U.S. to continue to use India at least as sort of a cosmetic, if not a substantive counterweight to China in Asian and world affairs more broadly. So also expecting more of the same. So you look at the upshot of all of this, Russia and China, the countries the U.S. national security strategy deems to be the countries that are, you know, the United States' biggest enemies are taking that statement very seriously, which is notable, truly notable, that when it comes to the general orientation of whether to seek global cooperation or risk war in order to maintain control of the entire world for a handful of super rich people, that the Democrats and the Republicans are, are more than willing to play the role of arsonists here. And when you look around at Congress and people who you may think might try to hold some of these people back, I'm sorry to say, it doesn't seem like there's a firefighter in sight. <laughs> 
it's fairly common for Israel to use major global events as a cover for their actions, hoping that their lawless, brutal behavior will just get swept away with bigger headlines from somewhere else. Uh, in fact, just a historical note here, just a small historical note, the current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said many years ago in the Knesset that Israel had missed a huge opportunity to massively expand their apartheid presence uh, on Palestinian land during the Tiananmen crisis in China, that they should have used that to annex more land, destroy more people's homes, and kill more Palestinian people. Well, he still seems to be thinking along the same lines as he was back then, since just a few days ago, Israel launched what is the largest home demolition in years, right in the thick of the U.S. election drama, of course, so most of you undoubtedly missed it. 73 people were made homeless in the Jordan Valley Bedouin village of Kirbet Humsa. Israeli bulldozers took down homes animal shelters, toilets, and solar panels, and what the United Nations called a grave breach of international law. One resident told the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, quote, we didn't know they were coming, and we didn't prepare, and now we are facing rain. Unbelievable. Well, maybe it's actually totally believable, but it's certainly outrageous. Israel said that they demolished people's homes because they were living in a so-called military training area. These are known in Israeli parlance as firing zones. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, however, stated that what they did was a breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Now, of course, this is all par for the course for Israel, which is illegally occupying large amounts of Palestinian land, explicitly in breach of international law, and that itself exists on land stolen from Palestinians in a war in 1948, despite the fact that that has now been deemed legal and just. It's all stolen land. It's all an apartheid regime. But nevertheless, this is not new. This is Israel from day one to now. Same type of behavior. And one other thing that seems clear about this is if the Obama administration is any precedent or the fact that Kamala Harris is very, very close to AIPAC. In fact, one of the few Democrats who was willing to stay close to AIPAC the past couple years where there were wide-scale boycotts by Democrats of the AIPAC conference, she was still going, one time secretly so people wouldn't know. What do we draw from that? It's that the U.S. under President Joe Biden will do little to nothing to prevent more of these sorts of actions or propose any real punishment for Israel for its promotion of apartheid policies. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 